This week's John Tapp Racing Podcast is brought to you by Inglis, number one in its field. And now it's time for a trip down memory lane with a former great jockey. It's hard to believe 16 years have gone by since Brian York crashed to the turf with a horse called Panorama at Rose Hill, suffering very, very serious damage to a knee. I can vouch for the fact that no injured sportsman ever worked harder in the rehabilitation process than Yorkie did in an endeavour to get back into the saddle. But eventually, he had to give up. He's done all sorts of things in the ensuing 16 years. Media work, racing management, photography, and now something very new, very innovative and very rewarding. Let's say good morning to a former jockey who looks back on a career that brought him 2,000 winners, 35 Group 1s, and the privilege of riding some really great horses. Yorkie, thanks for joining us on the podcast. Oh, good to talk to you too, Johnny. It's been a while. Let's find out what you've been up to, mate. You're working for Gay Waterhouse and Adrian Bott, and this is a brand new venture. Tell us all about it. Uh, yeah, we uh, we do video, uh, little short videos of um, the horses in work, uh, just sort of follow them around at the track and sometime around the stable in the afternoon and we just do little updates for the owners so mm. uh, they get to see their horse, uh, uh, what what they're doing and uh, we overdub it with uh, with a audio uh, just explaining what how the horses are going, how they're shaping up and what the plans are and that sort of thing and Mm. Um, it's just all information, a little bit of PR, and keeps the owners happy. And it's very much gay, isn't it? I mean, she's been doing this sort of thing for a long time. Oh, well, she's a PR queen, isn't she? So, yeah. Um, she, uh, she really knows how to promote her business, and um, this is something that uh, really sort of uh, just goes hand-in-hand like hand with her attitude and, um, as I say, keeps the owners informed. And uh, obviously some of them live overseas too, which is another benefit of doing this sort of thing because they're, they're never going to see their horses unless they yeah. come out here. So, uh, yeah, the overseas owners get to have a look at their horses galloping and, and see what they're doing in the afternoons. So what mornings are you going to the track? Fast mornings only? Uh, pretty much, yeah. I, I usually go there on a Monday and a Tuesday um, and then uh, not so much Wednesdays, but a lot, I do a lot of the uh, computer work in the afternoons and, mm. and that sort of thing. And Fridays I, I go down and do all the jump outs so uh, it's uh, another uh, thing that uh, most of the owners like to see. They like to see the horses in their education, how their education's going, and mm. uh, it's good for them to see those as well, but also uh, for, uh, for Gay and, uh, and the rest of the staff to look back on when they need to. Mm. Brian, it's an ideal situation for an ex-jockey, isn't it? I mean, you're busy, uh, you're occupied, and you're still in racing. Yeah, that's right. It keeps me involved, and... Um, it's doing something that, well, I'm combining two of my loves, really. I mean, I've always liked playing around with my camera and mm. taking photos and whatever, and I'm using the same gear that I use for all my still stuff. Mm. So uh, it's not something new that I had to learn, although the software was a bit different. Um, I had to uh, give myself a bit of a refresher and crash course on uh, video editing. Uh, I've done mm. plenty of stuff with uh, uh, in Photoshop and, and Lightroom and that sort of thing on the computer with my stills, but... Uh, the video editing software is uh, slightly different, but uh, because of the background I already had with the uh, the still photography, it was sort of not too hard to pick it up pretty quickly. Mm. I can't believe you've turned 56. 
And it's a funny thing, you know, had you returned to the saddle after that uh, awful accident 16 years ago, you'd be well retired again by now. Yeah, yeah, probably. Uh, look, you know, I'm, I'm still pretty fit. You know, a lot of people say when they see me, it, uh, you know, a lot of people say oh, I look like I could still be riding. And mm. you know, to be honest, uh, if I hadn't had those injuries that forced me to retire, I reckon I probably could have rode for another 10 years at least anyway. Mm. Um, you know, uh, all going well, obviously, and it's uh, such a dangerous um, occupation that you don't know what's going to happen in, mm. in a decade. It's a long time, a decade to be uh, taking those sort of risks as well. So, mm. uh, barring any uh, further accidents, I think, you know, my body probably could have taken another decade at least. Mm. Brian, what was the actual knee injury? I remember when you started rehab because we followed you down there with a with a Sky Channel camera one day, and that's how I know how hard you were working. But when you got onto a horse, the friction of the knee against the saddle was the problem. You couldn't bear it. Yeah, well, I had a lot of hardware in there, screws and plates and that sort of thing, and uh, it was on the inside of the knee, and mm. it's right where the where your knee and your uh, the inside part of your tibia touches the saddle, and where you mm. you grip you know, grip your knee mostly, and. Uh, you know, so that was a very awkward spot to have it. But so it was so much so that I uh, I actually had another operation to have those uh, that hardware removed. Mm. But uh, the because of the location of the brakes and um, the fact that it went straight into the knee joint as well, mm. uh, the joint was giving me problems and you know it was giving me a lot of pain and it was uh, causing me to, to to really be very stiff in the knee and, and not be able to to flex it as much as normal and I, I couldn't bend it as far and I, when I did bend it I couldn't mm. uh, continue to keep it bent and I, if I bent down or squatted down for about any longer than a minute even mm. uh, it'd be extremely painful just to straighten the leg out again so you know it was really something that uh, you know it's very hard to, and dangerous to be riding horses with mm. in any pain at all so yep. uh, you know I already actually had a predated dating injury in that same leg and the hip so mm. uh, Riding, you know, with a, a certain amount of pain at that through that injury as well was with the knee on top of it was, you know, double trouble. So basically, mm. there was no hope I was going to get back riding. A lonely moment though when you had to make the decision. Yeah, it's uh, you know, I guess you could say I was probably still at the height of my form too because oh. I'd won the Sydney Jockeys Premiership in the previous season um, before the accident. So, you know, I guess I was more or less at the top of the game. Oh, you were. Brian, it's not all that well known that you're a canny Scotsman by birth. Well, that's right, yeah. I was born in Scotland. I spent my first, uh, the first nine or ten years of my life in Scotland. And mm. uh, my dad, uh, mum and dad decided that, uh, you know, we we maybe uh, find a better life in, uh, in New Zealand originally. So they decided to immigrate to New Zealand. So ten years of age, I was out there. Mm. Now, that's where you became apprentice to a fellow called Cliff Fenwick at Takanini. Uh, Cliff is well known in Australia. He won three Adelaide Cups with a very good horse called Lord Reams and the Caulfield Cup too, I think. He did. That's right, yeah. And I was actually lucky enough to ride him before he had, well, obviously before he won those races, but I was still in New Zealand mm. uh, when he kicked off his career and I, I did win a couple of races on him before I moved over to Brisbane to ride for Bruce. Mm. Well, that's when your career took off, Yorkie, when you moved to Brisbane. 
And you formed that amazing association with Bruce McLaughlin, the late, great Bruce McLaughlin. During that time, you won three Queensland Jockeys Premierships. Yeah, it was a great time. I loved riding for Bruce. He was such a great bloke. He was a good mate of mine as well. And uh, it was very, very sad when we lost him, of course. But um, we had a great partnership. He had a lot of faith in me and uh, I had a lot of faith in him. And uh, we got on like a house on fire. So, Mm. you know, it was the the makings of a good good partnership. But uh, we had a lot of good horses at the same time. So Mm. uh, we really did have a great time. Mm. Now, we had that magnificent training property at Caboolture, uh, and you live nearby. You sort of stationed yourself just across the road, so you, you had to walk to work. Yes, that's right. I, I bought a property next door, and I actually still have it, so um, mm. I get to see the former Thornhill Park quite regularly when I go up there. It's mm. not the same, obviously, but it's all been uh, subdivided up into 40-acre blocks and um you know, it's uh, the the track and everything's not there anymore. So mm. that's quite a sad thing to do to see every time you go past it. But it was very very handy. I, I still mm. like my place up there, and mm. um, I just uh, have great memories of of that part of the world, I guess, and mm. um, brings back memories every time I go up there. Your best day in Brisbane racing was one day at Doomben when you rode five winners. Yeah, that was actually my last day of riding before I went to Hong Kong. Um, mm. yeah, I was due to go uh, virtually straight after and uh, lucky enough to ride five winners, but uh, it was great to be able to do that in a very good send-off. You rode some very special horses for Bruce McLaughlin. One of them was St Jude. He won 10 from 28, nearly $2 million in prize money. You rode him in all 10 of those wins, and they included the Show Day Cup, Canterbury Guineas, Spring Champion Stakes, and he ran second in a Stradbroke too to Rough Habit. What a professional, tradesman-like racehorse he was. He was, wasn't he? He was a lovely horse too. Uh, nice. He was a stallion, but he, obviously, uh, unfortunately, he was, uh, wasn't was very successful at stud, but he was very well bred. He was out of a Group 1 winning mare and by God's walk and, and just an absolute specimen of a horse himself. So mm. it's quite unusual that he, he wasn't more successful at stud, but a real gentleman to ride. And as you said, very professional. Um, he's a horse that uh, I had, uh, not only, as you said, did I ride him in all his wins and most of his races, but I rode him right through all of his preparation and all his education from the time he came into the stable. So mm. it's really satisfying when you uh, have an off. Uh, uh, association with a stable like that and you get to ride them in all their education ride them all, all the way through and they become mm. champion horses so it's just something special really In the same colours as St Jude was Chortle you won a couple of group ones on Chortle a Caulfield Guineas always a lovely race to win and a QTC Sires Produce Stakes Yes uh, he was another uh, uh, nice horse he, he probably never really reached his potential he was a really really good Brenda Myler, but uh, he had one or two issues and um, didn't quite see it, see out his potential, but they, these are pretty good races to win anyway, so he did quite well. well. Mm. And what about old Planet Ruler? Early on in his career, you won 10 straight races on Planet Ruler, culminating in the 1988 Stradbroke. Oh, wasn't he a wonderful old horse? He was a great horse, uh, Planet Ruler. Yeah, he was probably the horse that kick things off for me in, in Australia too, really, because uh, when he won the two-rack handicap in, in Melbourne, 
um, Nick Collum was actually looking for a jockey for Impazera. So mm. uh, straight after that, I got the call from Nick to uh, on the Tuesday night, can you ride this horse in the Caulfield Cup? And she duly came out and won. So, uh, so not only was he, great, was he a great horse to me, he helped, really helped him to kick things off. Mm. I think you won a Gadsden Stakes on Planet Ruler too, didn't you, down the straight? Yes, he did. Um, came from last. He was a horse that uh, fairly versatile in that respect. He could race early in his career. He used to lead, then he sort of, uh, you know, he used to race just off the speed a little bit. Then by by the time he got to uh, that stage of his career, I think eighty eight, eighty nine, he he'd uh, in shorter races he was better off to be let just find his feet. And he'd come from near the tail of the field, but mm. uh, very very good sprinter mile himself. For over 150 years, Inglis has led the way in the field of thoroughbred auctions. In 2018, Inglis again sold the most yearlings at the highest average. Last season, Inglis was number one for Group 1 wins and the only auction house to sell a Group 1 winning two-year-old. They sold four, in fact. I'm proud to align myself with Inglis, number one in its field. In 1995, Brian, you got yourself on a terrific little horse from New Zealand called Our Mazekay. You won six straight on him as an early three-year-old. He won the San Domenico, the up-and-coming, the Roman Consul, Ascot Vale Stakes, and then the Group 1 Vic Health Cup and the Group 1 Caulfield Guineas. Yeah, there weren't many that had uh, his sort of speed. He was so quick out of the gates and such a fast horse. I mean, uh, um, and the little, you know, pocket battleship he was. He wasn't very tall, but really, really thick set and a typical sprinter, mm. but a very good horse to me. And I was lucky enough to get on him really after Mick Dippman got suspended. Mm. Um, he'd been riding him, or he rode him in the slipper as a two-year-old. Um, he ran a very good four from a wide alley and didn't get beat very far. I think um, Flying Spur might have won that slipper. Mm. Um, I think he did, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and so he only got beat. You know, less than a length, half between half and a length or something. And, yeah. Uh, as I say, from a wide alley, and then he came back in in the uh, spring of the next season, and as you said, cleaned up. He ran in the Cox Plate. He had forty eight point five kilos, and I remember when the decision was made to run him in the Cox, and that you'd been invited to ride him. You know, Brian, most people here thought you had no hope of making that weight. <laughs> yeah. I can understand why too, because I hadn't ridden that weight since my apprentice days, and I was about 35 at the time. So mm. it was something that I hadn't done in a long, long time. But uh, you, you know, that Cox Plate had always been in the back of their mind, all the way running through it up to the uh, uh, the Caulfield Guineas and whatever. They, if he mm. kept winning and winning well, which he did, uh, it was always an option that they thought they might try and stretch him to the 2000. Which mm. um, you know, he was never really a chance of running, to be honest, but I guess when you've won your last six and mm. won the Caulfield Guineas by three lengths, you probably like to have a go at it. But mm. uh, I'd been telling him all along that if he ever went that far, I wouldn't be able to ride him because I, I didn't think I'd be any, any hope of riding 48 and a half. Mm. And after the Guineas, I actually did tell them that, yeah, that was it, I wasn't going to ride him. And then I got a phone call from Ron Johnson on the, the Sunday after the Guineas, mm. and he basically taught me and they having a go over here. He reckoned he could get me to, down to the weight. So I mm. said, all right, well, uh, we'll give it a go and see how it goes. And so I got back yeah. on the phone, said to the owners, look, you know, I'll have a go at riding this horse. And yeah. I said, great. And, so, and off we went. But yeah. I got to the races that day and I was 46 and three quarters stripped. Good God. How did you feel, though? Not I bad? I felt good. 
Mm. Yeah, I did. I really did feel good. I mean, I did it uh, with Ron Johnson's help and uh, in the right way. I wasn't, I didn't starve myself uh, and dehydrate myself completely. So mm. I still felt good enough. But uh, unfortunately, um, obviously the horse, uh, as I said, was never going to run that distance. But he, mm. he finished up pulling up with a uh, wind infliction anyway. He had a, a throat infection and. Mm. Uh, he subsequently ran last in the race, so mm. it was all a bit disappointing that it was uh, for for no benefit. But I did get some benefit out of it because I, uh, I kept my weight down for quite a while after that, feeling mm. light, lighter mm. than I had been, and also learned a lot about uh, it to control my weight a bit better. Mm. So there was a, a benefit. There was a win. But there was a good side to it. Yep. Yep. You rode another great little horse called General Nadim. He won 13 races. You were on board for six of them, including a Group 1 double, the Lightning and the New Market. I think you rode him in the Caulfield Guineas too, didn't you? Ran third. I did, yeah. And um, he was a bit unlucky that day. He got attacked and um, got into a situation where uh, it was a, more or less had to make a little bit more use of the horse than I would have liked. And he wasn't able to win that day, but uh, he, he said he was a good horse too, very much in the symbol of been to uh, our most gate. Mm. Uh, they were on pace horses, but in similar types too. So mm. uh, another good one for me to get on. And, and again, at uh, Mick Dittman's expense, I think he was he actually rode him in, uh, prior to the uh, three old season as well, and again got suspended. And I jumped on. Mm-hmm. Brian, you talk about our Mace K being a compact, blocky little horse, uh, and, and looking every inch a sprinter. What about General Nadim? He was built like a brick amenities block. He was, yeah. Very similar. They were two very, very similar horses, but just different colours, obviously. But, um, yeah, yeah uh, great horses, both of them. I was surprised to learn that you only rode for Lante on two occasions. One of them yeah. was in the Chelmsford Stakes, in which you ran second, and you won on him in the 1996 Epsom. Now, Brian, I've made this statement many times. I can't remember seeing a horse in a major race at Randwick look the winner as far from home as he did that day. Did he feel something like that? Oh, he did. I'll never forget the, the feeling that gave me coming up the rise that day. I mean, uh, I rode a lot of good horses, and even uh, right up to the time when I rode Martin Power and Fairway and the likes, you know, I don't think I've mm. ever come across a Randwick rise uh, with such a lap of of horse under me, mm. and the horse just bolting and uh, was going to absolutely explode and I let him down and exactly what he did. Mm. It was a phenomenal feeling, and up prior to that, I'd never experienced it myself, but I'll never forget it. Mm. And so to the best horse you've ever thrown a leg across, the remarkable might and power. 15 wins, 5 million in prize money, more than that, in fact. You won on him seven times, Brian, three of them at Group 1, Jimmy Cassidy won seven races on him. John Marshall, I think, was the other one. But at one stage, it was musical chairs, wasn't it? You and Jim Cassidy. Yeah, that's right. Um, I don't know exactly what uh, their thinking was, but it just seemed to be that Jimmy rode him in Melbourne mostly, and I rode him in Brisbane and Sydney. Mm. Uh, it worked out that way anyway, but um, I'm not sure who was uh, who was making the decisions either. It was Jack or Nick, but Nick always seemed to... <laughs> so that it was, yeah, yeah. Yeah. it was him that was uh, deciding he was going to ride the horse. But anyway, I was just thankful to be on him for the wins that I was on him for. Mm. You know, to an observer, 
He didn't look a smooth ride, Brian. He had that high stepping action, and he used to. He looked like he was just slamming the ground. Did he? Did he give you that feel that he lacked a bit of fluency? Oh, look, he he wasn't the best action horse, but he was so powerful. I mean, he'd give you a great feel anyway. But you know, he had, he carried his head a bit high, and uh, as you say, he sort of slapped his legs down. But um, it was certainly not an action that you you get on and think, oh, gee, you know. This is awful, but uh, you know there were certainly, but other horses, or and certainly horses of that quality that mm. had much more smooth and um, and more fluent actions. But mm. uh, one horse I did ride uh, when I was riding a little bit of bar coming to ride a horse called Alpha, and mm. he, he's the smoothest horse you've ever ridden. That horse, I mean, he, he, mm. you couldn't even feel his legs touching the ground. He was that smooth. Good, Alpha. Yeah. Yep, carried all yeah. orange colours. He did. Him. Mm, I remember him. Brian, Might and Power, did, did you have a favourite race? Was there one supreme performance in your mind? Oh, the Queen Elizabeth was probably his most dom- dominant other than the Caulfield Cup, but he was certainly mm. the most dominant the riding. I rode him in, and mm. um, he was coming back from the mile and a half of the BMW after he won that, uh, the BMW, and uh, mm. um, I sort of thought to myself, well, look, you know, he, coming back in distance, Might and Power was a sort of horse that... Uh, he needed to be at his top. He needed room and time to be able to get to his top. He couldn't. One of the sort of horse that could, you could just sit, and then he would just, um, you know, show a turn of foot and push it, force him his way out of gaps and that sort of thing. He, mm. he needed room to build his momentum up, and I didn't want to get myself into the position where I was going to be um, you know, find myself in trouble. So mm. I thought, coming back in distance, I'm going to have to make sure he gets out pretty quick. So I, I kind of bustled him out of the gates and made sure he was in the first couple for the first furlong mm. and then um, uh, let him lead after that once he got comfortable. And the other thing was that I was going to make sure it was a staying test too. So uh, I didn't wait around. I mean, I, I sort of let him, let him run a bit and, and made it their staying test. And, um, you know, you probably couldn't forgive him for, um, you know, having to really fight off uh, challenges and horses that had dropped on him, but he, he just left them to it. I mean, he, mm. he just actually got further and further away from them before he went, so mm. uh, finished up winning by about 10 lengths or something. Oh, so, a huge margin and yeah. a hot field. I think yeah. that good mare Champagne might have run second. She did, yeah. Uh, Juggler uh, was in the race? He was there. Uh, Gold Gurry, he was a good horse. Yeah. Uh, oh, crack yeah. field. Mm. Now, Brian, you led on him every time and so did everybody. But you did have a reputation at one stage as being uh, a front runner's jockey because of your judgment of speed. Uh, you did it a lot in the longer races, but one that you won, a group one at Randwick on a leader, I don't know if he was supposed to lead that day, but you did, was Fairway in the Derby. Yeah, uh, well, he, he was a horse that uh, liked to be near the speed as well, and uh, I think we pretty much decided we were going to lead on him that day because there was no speed in the race and he'd drawn a wide alley, so the best thing to do was to just let him come across the front of the field mm. and then try and dictate. And we were able to do that um, so easily that uh, it, everything just worked out beautiful for me. I, I didn't rush him out of the gas because I knew that I was going to have to um, – I was going to be able to take my time to get there with uh, everybody else looking for a leader. And so I just let him am- amble across and then just slowed them up mid stages and it, they were never going to beat him the way we went, mm. I mean, the, the speed that we went and the, the sectionals that I was able to give him, uh, he was never going to lose that race. Mm. And yet the finish was pretty tight, wasn't it? 
Uh, I think he won by about a length. Did he? Oh, I thought yeah, something got closer, yep. Yeah. No, no he was... Uh, now, that reminds me again of your uh, relationship with the Jack Denham stable. You, you had a longer tenure as stable jockey for Jack Denham than uh, every other jockey that I can recall. Looking back now, Brian, how would you describe your association with Jack? Oh, look, he, he, he was never uh, a friendly bloke to be getting up to riding for Jack, but um, <laughs> he tolerated jockeys, Jack, I guess. They were, they were a necessity to him, yeah. I guess. But, um, you know, I got up well enough to be able to stick around here for quite a while, as you say, and uh, there was plenty of people who used to come up to me and say, oh, do they hear you last in this long? Because, mm. um, you know, most people don't. But anyway, we uh, we, we had a good association, and he, he was he was a good actually a good trainer for me because as you already mentioned there was horses like Fairway and, and Might and Power that he put me on and Falante so mm. I probably rode some of the best horses I ever swung a leg over for him so mm-hmm. it was certainly a good um, association for me. Mm. He had one frustrating habit uh, mm. from a jockey's viewpoint and I remember the late Ken Russell told me the same thing. He would never tell you at acceptances what you were required for from his stable. So if he wanted you for three or four races, you could have picked up three or four outside rides, but he would, he would never tell you what he wanted you for. Well, yeah, he was, uh, it was always um, Jack's way or, or no way, but, um, you know, the, the biggest thing that I found a, a bit, and I guess it's fair enough, for he was the sort of guy that said, well, you know, if you're riding my horses, you ride them all, not just a good one. So mm. uh, there were times where, um, you know, one notable horse that I can think of that uh, Cosby and Belle is yours came along in her year. Mm. Uh, I actually rode her in her first win mm. and uh, I know that uh, Singo wanted me to stick with the horse and so did Clary and they wanted me to make a, a commitment for that preparation right through the slipper mm. and I just said, oh, look, you know, I'm going to have to run this past Jack first mm. and uh, I can't exactly remember exactly what he said to me or what his words were but basically mm. he left me no, uh, no doubt that uh, I was eager to ride whatever he wanted me for or, or none of them. So mm. I had to let that her go and she duly come out and won the sliver. Yeah, in spectacular fashion. She did, yeah, Mr. Starton and charged home. Now, Yorkie, do you realise, had you never left Scotland, you might have been playing the bagpipes at the Edinburgh Military Tattoo <laughs> instead of riding to fame and fortune on the back of champions like might and power. Yeah, it's a funny thing. You never know where your life would have gone in different circumstances, and it certainly would have been a fair bit different. Um, but my dad had always wanted to be a jockey, but um, he, he from Scotland, obviously, and uh, he was all organised to go down to Newmarket to start an apprenticeship down there, and then his mother decided that she didn't want him to do it. So uh, she put the kibosh on that, and he joined the Navy instead. But... Mm. Um, I, I think with that association, and like he used to say to me all the time, because I was so small, mm. he said, you should be a jockey, and that's kind of where the idea came from in the first place. Mm. And whether I would have still done that in, uh, out of the UK or not, I don't know. But mm. No one will ever know, but uh, you're, you're right. You know, Things could have been a, a way different. Well, he was a good judge, your old man, because you did ride 2,000 winners and 35 group ones. Your career finished on a very sad and unfortunate note, but by crikey, you crammed a lot into it uh, in the years 
prior to that. And Brian, you must look back on your career as a very fortunate one and a very happy one. Absolutely. Well, you've hit the nail on the head there, John. It's, uh, I was lucky enough to get on some good horses, and uh, that's lux of fortune. And um, you know, make or breaks careers, makes or breaks careers. And um, I'm very proud of what I was able to achieve, but also feel very lucky. You're keeping Karen in check. No, that's never going to happen, mate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right, you're still obeying orders. I am. Yes, she's a boss. <laughs> okay, mate. Yeah. It's been a long time and it's just great to catch up again, Brian. Thank you so you much for your time. Thanks, Johnny. See you, mate. For over 150 years, Inglis has led the way in the field of thoroughbred auctions. In 2018, Inglis again sold the most dealings at the highest average. Last season, Inglis was number one for Group 1 wins and the only auction house to sell a Group 1 winning two-year-old. They sold four, in fact. I'm proud to align myself with Inglis, number one in its field. 